You're listening to Now I've Heard Everything, interviews from the 80s, 90s, and 2000s with voices from the past. I think my first big theatrical hero was uh, John Barrymore, and then closely followed by the whole Barrymore family, Lionel and Ethel and John Drew and all of them. They were my sort of theatrical heroes. Actor, producer, Douglas Fairbanks Jr. Today on Now I've Heard Everything, I'm Bill Thompson. Douglas Fairbanks Jr. was born into one of Hollywood's first royal families. His father, Douglas Fairbanks Sr., was a swashbuckling movie star. His father and his stepmother, Mary Pickford, were among the founders of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. You know, the people who give out the Oscars. But as you're about to hear, Douglas Fairbanks Jr. was not necessarily born to be an actor. But once the acting bug bit, Douglas Fairbanks Jr. went on to become a major star in his own right. He made his film debut 100 years ago this month, May of 1923, with a silent picture called Stephen Steps Out. Now, Fairbanks made several more silent movies before moving on to a very successful film career in the 1920s and 30s in the talkies. During his life, he was married three times, including a fiery romance with actress Joan Crawford. He also served with distinction in the U.S. Navy during World War II, but his military service was not his only contribution to the war effort, as you'll hear in a few minutes. Finally, in 1988, at the age of 79, Douglas Fairbanks Jr. wrote his autobiography, or at least volume one of what was planned to be a two-volume autobiography. It was a book he called The Salad Days. So when he went on a book tour, I had the rare opportunity, which I was not about to pass up, to meet and shake hands with and converse with an actual silent movie star. So here now, from 1988, my conversation with Douglas Fairbanks Jr., you know, I looked it up in the dictionary, and the dictionary says salad days is defined as youth, innocence, and inexperience. Now, how, how inexperienced and innocent uh, are, you, uh, are you purporting to be in your salad days? None of that. I'm uh, quoting from, an, uh, uh, from Shakespeare. From Shakespeare. Did mm-hmm. you see that part? Mm-hmm. Oh, well, then, then you know it's... Uh, As a matter of fact... Romeo and, uh, not, no, uh, Anthony and Cleopatra, isn't it? I think. I, think, I, I think the dictionary even alluded to Shakespeare. <laughs> yeah, my salad days when I was green in judgment. That's from Anthony and Cleopatra of Shakespeare. So that's what it came from. So you were not young and inexperienced and innocent? Uh, well, this, this refers to the salad when I was inexperienced and green. Why does one write an autobiography in two volumes? Well, the story is so long. It's cut down. I mean, it could be three volumes. <laughs> it was much longer, and the publisher said, oh, wait, this is dead wood. This is fine for your children, your grandchildren, and so forth. But for the public, we'll cut it down, and um, this is what's left. So th- th- it was much longer than this. And then there's a second volume coming, and I hope I get it all into the second volume. Is it hard to, when, you're, when your publisher says, hey, I'm sorry, that's, that's got to go, that, that passage that, that was so moving to you, it just, <laughs> it just, it just isn't going to work? No, not really, because I save it, as I say, for the family to read in later generations. And the publisher is the one who's got to sell the book, and if he thinks it ought to go out, well, I always reckon he knows more than I do. Could you have been born into the family that you were born into, born with the name that you were born with, and not gone into show business? Oh, yes. Oh, sure. Yeah. Very much so, because the family was separated, and uh, I was um, brought up by my mother, and she was not at all show business, unquote. Her family was all uh, involved in business and tycoonery and, and cotton and 
New England life and so forth. So anything, so anything but the theater world. So I very well could. And then I started out thinking I was going to be a writer or a painter anyway. Didn't think of the theater till, till it just happened. I couldn't see you as as anything. Oh, anything, like a physical laborer. I'd always see, picture you in the arts somehow as a writer or a painter or an actor. Well, that's... Uh, I, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I've done quite a lot of physical work in my life, but um, I suppose it's what people are accustomed to seeing. Uh, as a young actor, who did you look up to? Who did you want to be like? Well, I suppose I wanted to be like myself more than anybody, if, if that was possible. But I didn't know what myself was, particularly. I think my first big theatrical hero was uh, John Barrymore and then closely followed by the whole Barrymore family, Lionel and Ethel and John Drew and all of them. They were my sort of theatrical heroes. Do you sometimes feel as though you have a, a responsibility to the film industry? Your father and yourself have carried on this tradition since, since the inception of the industry. Do you have a special responsibility? Uh, I might have had it had the um, had the industry sort of kept in touch with me, but I think they've forgotten I exist. I don't even get asked to the Academy Awards anymore. <laughs> well, not that I ever have, as a matter of fact. Although he started them, I did appear once to give a uh, prize to Gene Hersholt, or the Gene Hersholt Prize to somebody for for uh, representing the industry well, and that's the only time I've been connected with it. Um, so I, I I wouldn't know how to answer that. Did you ever turn down a part that somebody else went on to win an Oscar for? Uh, let me see. I don't think I was that foolish to turn down <laughs> a part that good. Um, no, sometimes when you're under contract, you have to take the part you're offered. You have nothing to say about it. But when you arrive at a certain stage and have a certain status, you can pick and choose. And then when I was my own producer, I was able to pick and choose, of course, more freely. Uh I don't recall making such a stupid judgment. I wish I had. (laughs) (laughs) I'm always reading these stories uh, about uh, Mm so-and-so. They turned down the part uh, because they figured the movie was going to be just a flop, and it turned out to to be a smash. I'm sure. Oh, that has happened. Yes, I've turned down things that I thought were no good, and then I've chosen things I thought were going to be a big, big success, and they turned out not to be. So I've had those experiences, yeah. How has your life turned out differently than what you thought it would be in the salad days? Um, I don't really know that it has turned out differently. I, I don't think I ever had much um, uh, long-range idea of what it would become. I was always interested in a lot of things. Like in sport, I was always more interested in doing the decathlon or a lot of events than I was any one event. I was more uh, interested in getting into the various races than to necessarily win them all, but to come into the first three. So when I was reasonably capable to sculpt uh, and, and to paint, uh, and then later on I managed to get some things published when I was 19, uh, I wasn't going to win any Nobel Prizes or any prize of any kind, a literary prize, um, but I was able to get published. Um, and so that was gratifying in itself to be able to do these things and have a, not exactly a renaissance man, but be able to do a little bit of everything, or many things, rather. Did you think you would live this long? <laughs> I think I'm just on the verge of maturity. <laughs> Our Linkletter says you are as old as you feel. Well, then I'm about, uh, well, I'm just uh, old enough to vote now. I <laughs> <laughs> I have to confess that I was 
There are there are many passages in your book that that are moving, but I think the the account as at the very opening of the book, the account of you uh, seeing your father on his on his deathbed, yeah, was a very very moving. Oh really? Story. Well, thank you. Uh, I, you know, my father is still li- is still living, but I could easily picture mm-hmm. him there, and the contrast between I can imagine what he would look like mm-hmm. as opposed to how I remembered him best. Yeah, yeah. he wasn't a swashbuckler, but he was uh, yeah. <laughs> he was an insurance man. <laughs> uh, well, <laughs> but it was, I think fathers and sons will will read that with a lot of a lot of um, you know, very mixed emotion, very pleasure on on the one hand, the, the fond remembrances, mm-hmm. but the fear too that goes along with losing yeah. someone like that. Well, thank you. I'm glad that <clears throat> message came out. Were there parts clear. of the book that were very difficult for you to write? Um, <clears throat> I don't remember anything other than to be sure that I was accurate in doing a lot of research on, on certain sections and digging up things. Because sometimes I tell a story. Sometimes I tell a lot of stories that I embellish and and uh, get better each time I tell it, or at least gets further away from the truth. Because I'm inclined to uh, to to. Uh, uh, Weave nice yarns around true story, and so I have to bring myself down to earth occasionally find out what really did happen before I began decorating my story. But you know, you get three or four or five people that all experience the same event, and especially with the passage of time, like that Japanese movie Rashomon, wasn't it? The same thing. Each of them has their own version of what happened. Yeah, well, that I had to check myself on. Yes, luckily there were two or three books written about me by other people, and any number of uh, newspaper articles and. And other people's memories, letters, and things like that. So I was able to sort of narrow it all down to see that I wasn't uh, taking liberties with my own life. After this short break, Douglas Fairbanks Jr.'s mission for the government in World War II. Now back to my 1988 conversation with Douglas Fairbanks Jr. Is there anything in the salad days that will be a big surprise to people who have followed your career? That's hard to say. It depends how many people are interested or how many people had uh, uh, one idea and didn't have another. I suppose, yes, I think a lot of people think that um, uh, I had a very easy time economically when I was young that, uh, because my father was successful and rich and that I was brought up with him. Uh, will find it uh, surprising that I wasn't and that I was not brought up with him and saw very little of him when I was young. That might come as a surprise, um, you know, things like that. Other things that, um, well, later on will come in the second volume, all the adventures in the war will come as a surprise to people, but that's not until the second volume comes out. You were about the age that I am now when Franklin Roosevelt asked you to go to South America on mm-hmm. the fact-finding trip. Were you, were you scared? Were you nervous? Oh, not at all. No, I was looking forward to it. I was very excited about it, very pleased. I'd been exposed to foreign affairs and to government affairs behind the scenes for oh, two, three years before that. Uh, so this was sort of out in the open. I was very gratified for it. It was actually Cordell Hull and Sumner Wells' idea who put it up to the president. And then he approved it. And I had known the president and his family for many years because... When I was a boy, I used to play with the Roosevelt Boys in Central Park in New York. So, we, uh, the families were friends. Why did that. he? Why did he send you? Uh, I suppose because he knew that I was interested in foreign affairs, and for anyone who was in my profession, was what you might call a celebrity, would be known and be noticed and recognized, and that I had uh, sympathies for uh, our policy at that time, <clears throat> which was to support the Allied effort against Hitler. Uh, and Mussolini and the fascist powers, and uh, that uh, I would be able to 
swing some support behind our policy at that time. You know, it's hard for me to imagine President Reagan choosing uh, Dustin Hoffman, Robert Redford, or somebody like that to send on a on He'd a mission go himself, like... wouldn't he? <laughs> That's right. That's right. If he's going to send an actor, might, yeah. as well send, yeah. might as well go himself. Yeah. But I would imagine, you know, there, all the flack that he would catch today if he tried to do something like well, that. Well, uh, there weren't many, and I suppose there still aren't many, who've been involved in government affairs for some time in the background. Uh, there weren't then, and I don't think there are now. Uh, it was a sort of freakish set of circumstances that I had been involved in, in public affairs and had traveled a lot. I lived, oh, I suppose a good half of my life, almost abroad in, in various places and and uh, had some of my education, so-called, um, abroad, too. I went looking for one of your films the other day in the, in the video library at the store, and I found here it said... Prisoner of Zenda. I figured, oh, yeah. great. I'm going to mm. whip it out. And I noticed it wasn't yours. It was the 1950, uh, oh, a remake 54, of it. Yeah. 55. Oh, and I yeah. thought, this isn't the one. <laughs> I was very disappointed. Yeah, I never saw it. I didn't want to see it. I was afraid it would be too good. I didn't want <laughs> So I didn't see it. I'd rather stick with ours. Even ours was a remake. It was made as a silent movie first. And then it was a play first. And I wasn't sure I even wanted to do it because it was the supporting part. And I'd had my own company and everything. And my father was the one who persuaded me. He said, it doesn't matter if it's a supporting part. He said, it's, a, it's still the best, one of the best parts ever written for anybody, whether it's supporting or not. He said, it's so good, so actor-proof that Lassie the dog could play the part and walk away with it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, when, when television came, they said, the movies are dead. Mm-hmm. And then when uh, a few years ago, when the, when cable television and VCRs came, they said, the movies are dead. Mm-hmm. And yet more people are going to the movies today than had ever gone before in the history of movies. Why is, that, is, why is the industry so resilient? Well, I suppose there are more people in the world than ever before. That's <laughs> one thing. Uh, and maybe the price is right, uh, although I still think movie tickets are too expensive. Uh, but the cost of movies are too expensive, too. Um, and I suppose they provide people with a relatively inexpensive form of entertainment and a way of losing themselves, which has always been the case. It's um, television in a theater, or the television is movies at home. Uh, and people normally like to congregate. They like to get together and, and sit in a crowd. That's always been the case, whether it's in sports or entertainment. Way back before the Greeks and the Egyptians, they've always liked some form of public entertainment or something which would absorb them and take them out of their their routine lives. In your salad days, mm-hmm. it's a convenient phrase to keep coming back to. <laughs> what did you do to keep you going when you got discouraged? Um, well, I was lucky enough to have so many different interests. I could write, I could do sports, I could paint slightly, I could sculpt slightly. Um, and I always thought, well, tomorrow's another day. I never got permanently discouraged. I was just weak-minded, simple-minded enough to think that tomorrow was another day and I'd turn over another leaf. And, the... and you had plenty of friends to keep you going. Um, yes, I suppose, but there were, I never was staying in one place very long, so my friends were spotted here and there. Will people? Is there anything uh, that people will read in your book about uh, the women that you've known uh, that is going to surprise or shock anyone? Gosh, how am I to know that? I don't know. <laughs> uh, depends how much they've bothered to even uh, study my life or care about it. Um, I, I, I don't know. Some people will who've never thought about it or paid any attention, and other people who have will say, oh, yes, this is a little more detail, but that's all. 
you think it might seem tame compared to what we can read today in the tabloids? I think so, yes. I think probably maybe too tame, but I'm not, <laughs> I'm not the kind who likes to wash his linen in, in public. I just think that's a question of taste. I don't think there's anything held back, but I don't try and be sensational about it. Let, let, the, let the truth spill out without being uh, um, in bad taste or questionable taste, I should say. Douglas Fairbanks Jr. died in 2000. He was 90 years old. And you can get your copy of The Salad Days by Douglas Fairbanks Jr. by clicking on the link in our show notes or by going to our website, heardeverything.com. And that's where you'll also hear my 1986 interview with <laughs> Professor Kingsfield himself, actor John Houseman. And I said, I'm not asking you about that. I'm asking you about me, my performance. And they said, performance? There was no performance. You've been behaving exactly that way around here for years. <laughs> and my 1991 conversation with one of the greatest dancing stars of the movies ever, Ginger Rogers. Shoes to dance in to match the dress. And they'd always bring me my shoes from the dyers, and they'd still be wet. And I'd have to dance in shoes that were not dried. And they, you know how a shoe does, it begins to to shrink up. And of course, we post new episodes of Now I've Heard Everything here every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And you can find us on all major podcast platforms. I do hope you'll subscribe today if you haven't already. Thank you so much for listening. Next time on Now I've Heard Everything, we'll be talking fitness with a woman who's been one of the leading fitness gurus in America for over three decades. My 1995 conversation with Tamalee Webb. America is fat because we have convenience. Convenient banking, convenient foot shopping, convenient this, convenient that. So I try and cover all angles. That's next time on Now I've Heard Everything. I'm Bill Thompson. Mm-hmm.